Amen. Hey, y'all, so we've been walking through the book of Acts for, I don't know, several months, three or four months. <clears throat> and we, we, we talked at the beginning, uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when Jesus says, Go be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. That birth of the church that we saw in Acts chapter 2, we saw Peter's sermon at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 that really birthed the church. It really birthed this movement um, in ancient Israel. That series was called Birth. The series we're in now is called Growth, and it was Acts chapter 3, 4, and 5. And today we'll be in a little bit of 6. Still, this, It's going to be the last message in this series called Growth, where we see the, the, the beginnings of the growth of the church. But we also see some persecution going on, and we talked about that last week <clears throat> and the week before um, we saw the second last week, the second persecution. Some of Jesus' guys are arrested for the second, for the, you know, for the second time. But God used one thinking <clears throat> rabbi man named Gamliel. It was a reasonable man to plead, and he was part of the Sanhedrin. He was part of the Jewish leadership. <clears throat> but the Lord used him to plead on behalf of some of Jesus' guys, and and he and he because the Sanhedrin wanted to kill him. Gamliel pleads on their behalf. They call him in, they beat him, but they don't kill him. They beat him and they free him. And they said for the second or third time, don't be talking about no Jesus stuff. And so they free, they beat him and free him. And then they go right back out and what do they do? They start talking about some Jesus stuff, right? Because we serve an unstoppable God, right? We serve an unstoppable God that his gospel and the message about his son is gonna, it's gonna get out there. So today we're going to be in Acts chapter 7. Will you hand that bottle of water? Um, we're going to be in Acts chapter, excuse me, chapter 6, the first seven verses. Thank you. The first seven verses of chapter 6, last message in this series. And y'all, we have been using the, the CJB, the Complete Jewish Bible Translation, as we preach through this series. But today we're going to use the ESV, which is my go-to. It's, it's what I read on a daily basis is the English Standard Version, and we're going to use that today because I think it's a better translation of these seven verses. Nothing magical, I just think it's a better translation. <clears throat> and so Acts 6 is a transition from these first two straight-up persecutions that the church faced that were external, something outside of this early church. And remember, there was thousands of people in this early church by now, and you're still only six, seven, eight nine weeks from Pentecost, so this isn't deep into, into the, the, the early church, it's just very shortly after Pentecost, but you had two straight up persecutions from, from with, outside of the church, and Acts chapter 6, the beginning here, it transitions um, to the first internal problem in the church, you do realize that churches have internal problems, you do realize that Satan attacks internally churches. His playbook is not that big. He's been doing this for a long time. And the, and the scripture calls him shrewd and cunning and, and sneaky and slimy. It doesn't really call him slimy, but I'm calling him slimy. But he does attack internally in church. He's been doing it for, for a few thousand years. And so that's what we see here first, this first internal strife, this first internal conflict, this first fighting. But it also, it also provides us with a model of how to deal with it inside of a church. So let me read you these first seven verses and then we'll, we'll, we'll dig in verse by verse. 
Bible says, now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in numbers, so what are these days? These days are, are, this, are these days right after, this, right after the guys are freed from, from prison, they're preaching the gospel. It's these days as the, as the church is, is, is blossoming and growing. So in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, and we're going to talk about who the Hellenists uh, are in a minute, but a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because now both these groups are, are, are Christ followers. They're Hellenist Christ followers and Hebrew Christ followers. So this is talking about believers. And the complaint arose because their widows, whose widows, the Hellenist widows, were being neglected in the daily distribution, its distribution of food. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, who was a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed, and they laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So look at verse 1. So it's in those days, and the church is growing and increasing in number, that a complaint came up by the Hellenist. That complaint arose because the the, uh, because they, they didn't feel like their, their people were getting enough love. They were being neglected. Their widows were being neglected in the distribution of food. Oil and water, they don't mix. They don't mix. Look at this. Straight up, it's not moonshine, somebody this morning said. I said, get your mind out the gutter. Y'all, it's not, I promise it's not moonshine. It's oil and it's water. And I, I guess you can see that. Can y'all see that? And they, and, and they don't mix. They don't mix. And you can shake it up. You can shake it up. And, and, and it brings it together, right? But if I sat this right there, that togetherness does not last all that long. Because they're going to separate and they're going to segregate again. As soon as it sits for a while, as soon as it gets complacent, as soon as it gets used to to being on its own, they're going to, it's already starting, they're going to separate and they're going to segregate again. They go back to their own little departments. They go back to separate bedrooms. The oil sits over here every Sunday and the water sits over here every Sunday. Or the oily people go to the 930 worship service and the watery people go to the 11 o'clock worship service and they don't mix. They separate and they segregate. And they separate and they segregate because it's it's intrinsic in their nature that they won't mix. They won't mix. Now, mayonnaise, got me some mayonnaise too. Man, Hellman's mayonnaise, that's right. Mayonnaise, it is the best. I don't know, Duke's mayonnaise is pretty good. Mayonnaise doesn't have to be shaken up to be this substance. It doesn't have to be stirred up to be this. It's pretty much made up of, of mostly of... That's weird. Does it look like that's sitting on the cross? 
from there. I'm going to move that. So, so mayonnaise, y'all, I don't have to shake it up. It's made mostly of oil and water. But it also contains an emulsifier. Somebody on our worship team said that this morning. That contains an emulsifier. And I'm like, who, who knew that? But an emulsifier is something that brings things together. Things that otherwise would stay separate and segregated. Things that, that would never come together. So what is it in mayo? And I love me some mayonnaise. Now, I love me some mayonnaise. Although, you know, I had an I had a almost brother-in-law. Anybody have an almost brother-in-law? I had an almost brother-in-law who dated my, my wife's sister for years. And he, for seven years, I think. And he used to make, this is such a rabbit trail. He used to make what he called banana salad. And he would take a banana and put it in a plate and mush it with a fork until it was kind of mushy. And then he'd take like a cup of mayonnaise and dump it on there and stir it up, sit down and watch a football game and eat. <laughs> like I love mayonnaise, but that is nasty. That is, na I'm sorry, y'all. I, I didn't mean to go down that road. But what is it in, in mayonnaise that brings the oil and the water together? What is it? It's an egg. It's an egg. And mayonnaise, the egg, brings together two entities that don't normally play well together. The egg infiltrates both of them. You may even say the egg indwells the water and the egg indwells the, 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 the oil and the egg indwells the, this substance. And when it gets stirred up, it makes it so they're able to come together and be a cohesive substance. They're not separated and segregated anymore, right? Jesus acts as an emulsifier to bring people together. Black, white, blue, green, Jew, Greek. I, I, don't, care. I don't care who you are. He don't care who you are. There is no black and white. and There is no Jew and Greek. And there is no male and female. We are all what? One in Christ Jesus. And it's mostly, the way he does it, it's mostly him working through the people that would, would call him Lord. His people get it done. So here we are in Acts chapter 6, and this problem comes up in the church. Some widows are being neglected. And so you got two groups, two cliques in the church. And one was whining and grumbling and complaining about the actions of the other. One group felt that its needs weren't being met. It wasn't getting its due share of the attention. It wasn't getting its due share of the, of the care that it deserved. And there were several reasons for that division. Number one is that the church, the church had grown. When an organization grows, particularly when, a church, when an organization grows rapidly, all kind of problems come up. And most of them center around how to handle that growth. So the church had new members and the church needed to figure out how to minister to those new members. But it was struggling in reaching out and touching everybody. The lead pastors, that's the apostles, they just couldn't get to everybody. They just couldn't physically get to everybody. And so there, you had different groups of people coming into the church. There were the Hebrews, the Palestinian Jews, believers, but they were Palestinian, they were native to the land. They were born and they were reared in, in, in Israel, in Palestine. They spoke Aramaic, which is the language that came down from this ancient Hebrew language. 
And they tended to reject anything that was Gentile, anything that was Greek, they reject. Matter of fact, they hated. They hated the Greek culture. They only used the Hebrew Bible. The Hebrew Bible is in its original Hebrew language. This Hebrew Christian Jewish sort of culture was super close-knit. Parents living with kids and grandchildren and very close-knit, cohesive group of folks. And they just couldn't stand anything that was Greek. And sometimes they went as far as to say that, that the Gentiles, anybody that was Gentile, which included the Greeks, were eternally cursed by God. So you had that little clique. But then you had this, this other little group that were the Greek Jews, the Greek believers. They were known as Hellenists. Well, why were they known as Hellenists? Because Alexander the Great swept across the, really the whole known world around 300 B.C., so 350 years earlier, conquered almost the whole known world. Well, what did he do? He brought the Greek culture to everything. The language, the universal language became Greek. The culture became Greek. The, 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 the economy was, had Greek flavor. Every, it was the whole Hellenistic culture. And so you had these Hellenistic Jews, and they had been scattered all over the world, but many of them, they would return to, uh, to Jerusalem for Pentecost and for some of the great feasts. A bunch of them apparently got converted on the day of Pentecost, which was how long before this? Just a couple of months probably. And some of them, a bunch of them probably stayed in Jerusalem. They got saved at Pentecost and they stayed in Jerusalem and kind of the surrounding, the surrounding areas. And so these Hellenists had adopted everything that was Greek. They read the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament that came in about 150 or 200 B.C. God ordained that the Hebrew Old Testament would be translated into Greek. Why? Because Alexander the Great spread the Greek culture all over the world. Well, we want everybody to be able to read Scripture. And so it was translated into Greek, and they read the Greek. Well, the, the, the Jewish Christians that were Hebrews... They couldn't stand that. So that was a huge divide that the Hellenists are reading the Greek, that devil language, reading the Greek, New Te uh, the Greek uh, scriptures, but the Jews were reading the Hebrew scriptures. You know, now God had been working in their hearts to rid them of that prejudice, but apparently they were still hanging on to some of these feelings against the Hellenists. Maybe they felt like the Hellenist Jews were like, like they weren't due as much attention. Maybe they thought that they weren't, uh, that they didn't have as many rights as they had. So you had these cliques. Let me give you a couple of thoughts about that. People do and will form groups and cliques. I mean, they will. Unfortunately, they will. Going to church for your any Sunday in any place on the planet. And, you, and I don't care if it's a church of 50 or a church of 5,000. In the foyer, you're going to see little circles of people. Three, four, five people. And a circle is closed or open. Closed. And somebody new walks on by. Little circle. Does the circle typically open up? No. The, tur the circle typically stays closed. And you know how awkward it is to go into a church for the first time? Raise your hand if you've ever felt that awkwardness. Like, it's just awkward. That, that, that ain't right. 
That ain't the way it ought to be. We should be the most loving people on the planet. Absolutely, we should be the most welcoming, the most loving, the most, you know, the poster child for y'all, that is this young lady sitting right here. She is the poster child for that. She will tackle you when you come in the building. Now, we frown a little bit on the tackling, right? But we should be a welcoming people. What more do you have to be joyful over than you are saved? Like, is that, got one amen. There is nothing to be, and, and every, you, you should just be bubbling up with that joy. So, so anyway, people do form <coughs> groups and cliques. But we always got to be open. We always got to be accepting. And understand that accepting doesn't mean approving. We're accepting of the person. I don't care who you are. I don't care who you are. So we should always be open. We should always be accepting. We should always be outgoing. We should always be friendly. We should always be giving and, 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 and helping and humble. And we should really have this sort of undeserving nature before each other. Ministering to and receiving ministry from each other. Another thought is this. Groups and cliques are dangerous. They're, ver they're very, very dangerous. Because there's sins that walk alongside of the mindset that forms a clique. There's sins that run straight parallel with cliques. It's a sin of being exclusive and the sin of shutting other people out. A sin of not opening the circle up to ask somebody, just to embrace somebody, to say, how you doing? You don't know what people are bringing to the door when they walk into church. You don't know the baggage. You think you know the baggage. You have no idea. You have no earthly idea. They may be coming into a church with this massive church hurt. They, it may be the first time they graced the door of a church in 30 years. Because some dumb church did something dumb to them when they were 15 years old. And they've held on to that hurt for 20 or 30 years. You don't know that. You have no idea. It's probably fair to assume that with every single person that walks in the door. You don't know that they didn't on Friday morning have a cancer diagnosis. You don't have a clue. You don't have a clue. How can we as God's people not open the circle up and embrace every single human that walks in that door? Because this sin of exclusivity is absurd. There's a sin of feeling superior, which comes off as elitism or, or you're condescending to people. You feel like you're above everybody else and you got this little group of people and, and you kind of act like you want people to come to church, which you do, but let them be in somebody else's group, not my group. Y'all don't do that. That's the division that Satan is just clapping. He's look, walking around the world just clapping at that kind of garbage. You know, there's a sin of believing that you got more rights than they do, that you deserve more love than they do, that you deserve more in the daily distribution than, than they do, of thinking that you are due more attention, your little group is due more attention than this other group over here. You know, another reason for the, for the division that that causes, or the division that was happening in that early church, is that leaders just didn't have enough help to look after all of the members. Remember, we're talking probably 20,000 people probably in that church at that time. Two things that got to happen. These are really pragmatic things that have to happen when this problem um, rears its head in a church. Number one, 
church has got to secure more help. That's just simple. You don't have enough help, you got to secure more help. You got to seek out people who sense that the hand of God is moving them, that, that the hand of God is calling them to minister and to care for other people. Number one, number two is this that the members of the church have got to quit demanding so much of the lead pastors. Bottom line. And accept the, that ministry, real ministry happens with lay leaders every day. And you've got to be able to accept the ministry of a lay leader. This are, amen. The early church was dealing with this weeks after Pentecost. Because people are called to, to minister to a body of believers. Not, not just, there's no, even, not even a, an office called lead pastor in Scripture. It's an apostle. It's a presbyteros. It's a shepherd. So now here, no, no denying it. They weren't denying any of this. They weren't denying that the problem was there. They weren't denying the division that was happening in the church. They weren't denying that the grumbling and the griping and the complaining... You know, why is that? Why, why did that all exist? And ultimately, there was not enough leaders to, to meet all the needs of the church. And you had this lack of enough leadership. When you have that, it always causes division. Always. Because people are going to run their mouth. They're going to gossip. They're going to be divisive. They're going to be cancerous to the body of Christ. Some folks will always feel like they are being neglected. Here's another reason for this division in the church. The church wasn't adequately organized to be able to minister to everybody. Leadership was only focused on the apostles. It was on the, all of the leadership was only focused on the apostles. You know, and, and I, I feel like when Peter writes First and Second Peter some years later, He's looking back down the corridor of time. He's looking back to this stuff that happened in Acts chapter 6. And he's, because he writes about the priesthood of the believers. That every believer, this is not going to be up there so somebody write it down. I think it's going to be good if I don't mess it up. Every believer is a minister. And every minister has a ministry. Every believer is a minister and every minister has a ministry. Whatever that may be. We are called to minister to each other. That's what happens when we lock arms. That's what happens when God reaches down and gives you a new heart. You should want to lock arms and you should want to serve each other in humility. Because none of us deserve the grace. None of us deserve it. You know what we deserve? We deserve to get thumped off the planet. I'm just so thankful every day that he saved me. A wretch and as undeserving as any human being that's ever walked the planet. So I should want to, and I do, feel like I want to serve a body of believers. So leadership at this time is only focused on the apostles. And so there's this, there's this need for a whole other level of ministers. A whole other level of ministry. Men who could reach out to every single member in that church. And then last reason for this division is that there clearly was favoritism being shown. Because most all of the food that is being distributed, it was being handled by the Hebrew Jewish Christians. And the Greek Jews felt like their needy were being neglected and that favoritism was being shown to the Hebrew 
widows. So there was definitely griping and grumbling and whining and division internally in this first church. And this is a church that just a few weeks ago, just a few weeks ago, seemed to be a paradise of unity. If y'all remember the message from a few weeks ago, um, well, it's probably a couple of months ago. The unity that was seen in this church and they're sharing with each other and they're serving each other and they're serving the community and they're just, there's this, this kumbayaness. Kumbayaness would be the, is that an adjective or that's an adjective. Somebody hashtag that and write it down. That was the early church at the very beginning. It didn't take long though. It didn't take long for some cancer to jump in there. You got a little persecution from outside. You get somebody's feelings got hurt. They ain't getting enough pretzels. And these people are getting, you know, more, more pita breads. I mean, I don't know. They felt like they wanted some more pita, I guess. It didn't take long. And you went from holding hands and singing kumbaya to straight up internal turmoil in this church. Verse 2 says, and the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, "It is." And this is the thing about this. This is the apostles that are saying this. They say it's not right that we should give up preaching of the word to serve tables. And serve tables is, a, is yes, it's literally serving tables. But it's, it's really almost metaphorical for we don't need to give up the preaching of the word for doing all this stuff. Whatever this stuff is. So they make a recommendation. They, got a, they have a town hall, which we're going to have in about a month and a half. More to come on that. But they have a town hall. They call the whole church together. And we're talking about a bunch of folks. And they didn't deny the problem. They graciously acknowledged that the problem existed. And the leaders, the apostles, they knew how, how easily people, in particular, cliques get when they feel neglected. How they can become suspicious, start throwing darts, cause even more problems within the church. Everything becomes this major big issue. And so the leaders wisely sought input. They looked for people's thoughts and people's advice and people's counsel and people's understanding and people's cooperation and people's involvement and people's love. And they asked for advice from a lot of folks. Now, there's a danger in that too, y'all. Like, I want everybody's advice all the time. But if you ask 15 people's advice, how many opinions are you going to get? About 15. If there's one solution to the problem, how many, people, how many people's solution is not going to be chosen? 14. So there's danger in that too. Why didn't he do what I said? He just likes her better. He just likes him better. No. No. All of us can make much wiser decisions getting input from all kind of people. Our elders, there's six of us. And we're equal. It's a plurality of elders. And when we appointed elders, I don't want yes men. I want people that will disagree with me. I don't need a bunch of people saying, yeah, 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 yeah. I will mess stuff up. So I, don't, I need people saying, no, you're wrong. Rather than, yes, you're right. So when we seek input from folks, I, we want the input. Like, if I ask your opinion, tell me your opinion. I don't want you to say, oh, yeah, I agree with you. No, no, unless you do. But if you don't, you need to say, I don't. Does that make sense? Okay. 
So what the leaders did is they declared what their primary call, the apostles did, they declared what their primary call was, what their primary mission is. They put it on out there that they had to concentrate on the word of God, dive in headlong into the word of God, proclaiming the gospel, preaching and teaching the gospel. So don't miss this. Like, don't miss their unmistakable sense of call and mission. Don't miss their unwillingness to be distracted from their primary call and mission. Don't miss, definitely don't miss this. And we hadn't gotten to this in, the, in the, this passage yet. But don't miss the church's understanding and acceptance of their primary mission. And I would say for the last 150 years probably, churches desperately need to embrace and to understand and to accept the primary call and mission of people that are in pastoral ministry. Because the apostles could have easily gotten sidetracked. They could have got caught up in the day-to-day -day ministry of stuff, the, the ministry of sitting and listening and serving and meeting the needs of the needy. And of course, those needs have got to be met. Like, of course they got to be met. It is the church's duty to minister to those needs and to meet those needs. It is not the government's responsibility. It's the church's responsibility. So I'm not, clearly I'm not, and they're not denying that. But often there's just too many people and too many needs, and some people fall through the crack. Raise your hand if you ever felt like you fell through the crack. For sure. Nobody in their right mind wants somebody to fall through a crack. Nobody in their right mind wants somebody to feel. Because if you feel like you fell through the crack, you fell through the crack. And we can't tell people how to feel. And so nobody in their right mind wants anybody to feel like they, they've, they've fallen through the crack. Here's another thought. And there is a break point. There is a breaking point at which pastors got to put up a guard and protect their primary call, their primary mission to proclaim the gospel. At some point, they got to put up and, and, and guard and protect that mission to preach and teach and proclaim the word of God. Above all else, have to prepare and study and dive in the word to preach the word of God. Ephesians chapter 3, Paul writes this. He says of this gospel in verse 7 of Ephesians 3. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. God's grace fell on him in the call to ministry, Paul, which was given by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul's primary call and mission in life was to share the gospel with Gentiles. He was laser-focused and locked down on that primary mission. Paul goes on and he tells Timothy, young pastor, in 2 Timothy. He says, Paul talking to Timothy, he says, I charge you. I'm, I'm telling you in the presence of the Lord, in the presence of Christ Jesus, who is the, to judge the living and the dead. This is in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He says, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom to preach the word, he tells Timothy, 
Your mission is to preach the word, to be ready in season and out of season. In other words, to always be ready to proclaim the gospel. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. So do tables need to be served? Absolutely they do. Do people in the foster system need to be served? Of course they do. Y'all, does the, does the floor need to be vacuumed? Like, of course it does. Do, do people need to be visited in the hospital? Of course. All of the answer to every one of those questions is absolutely of course. But, but they're saying for sure that stuff's got to take place. But our primary role is preaching and teaching the word of God. And we'll see in a minute And prayer. Verse 3 says, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, and we'll appoint these to this duty. So we're introduced in verse 3 to this whole new layer of ministry, this whole new level of ministers. Up to this point, the only leaders in the church were the apostles. And now a new office is being created to help with the work of ministry. Matthew chapter 9, Matthew wrote, Then he, Jesus, said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Y'all, there are tens of thousands of lost people in Muscogee County. Tens of thousands. There is a massive harvest out there. But the laborers are few. One of my prayers is, Lord, raise up leaders. Raise up laborers to go out and proclaim your word. Because there's not... That is not just the pastor's role. If you're a Christ follower, tell somebody about it. Matthew 28 and Acts 1-8, y'all. Now, I want you to look back at verse 2. That word, serve... You look, you can see it in your worship guide. That word serve is diakoneo. And we get that word, for the, the word deacon comes from that. And it means to, to minister to, to serve, to wait on, to come alongside and, and help, to spend time with. And so those, those men are being chosen to minister, to look after the needy, to, to look after the widows and the orphans of the church. And of course, they're not going to go run into those people, spend 10 seconds with them and go running out the door. The nature of that office is to spend time, to visit with, to hang out with, spend time with them, share and minister to those people in need. And so the, the deacons were being chosen to minister as much as the apostles, but with a different area of concentration. And I want you to hear this, hear it like attention. This does not mean that the apostles... The lead pastors never met the day-to-day -day needs of the body. It doesn't mean that the deacons never shared the word. That the deacons never preached and, and taught. It, do, it doesn't say that. Both served in both areas, but with different, different areas of concentration, different areas of, of focus based on their gifting and their talents and their abilities and their call and their mission. We see in verse 3 this broad the broad qualifications of a deacon. And so the apostles had a recommendation and they made this recommendation for the whole congregation to consider. Seven men needed to be 
appointed to handle this serving ministry, and the qualifications are listed, and they're really spiritual maturity-based. Number one, they've got to be men of good repute, well-attested, well-reported, good reputation. They bore a good witness. People thought highly of them. They were highly regarded. They were men of character. Their character had been proven beyond reproach. They were moral and they were, and they were upright. 1 Timothy chapter 3 goes on and gives us a little more detail about those qualifications. In verse 8 it says, Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not talking behind folks' back, not saying one thing and doing another, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine. They can't be a drunk. They can't be greedy. They must hold the mystery of faith, of the faith with a clear conscience. So they got to be full of the Holy Spirit. You got, they got to be conscious of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And I'd go even a step further and say they would need to be display the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Galatians chapter 5 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's the way deacons needed to look. It's the way they needed to act. It's the way they needed to speak. It's the way they needed to interact with people. And then a deacon's got to be full of wisdom, able to discern, able to see through, able to make judgment calls. You know, judgment calls somehow need to be made. And that's not a, don't, don't say he's judgy. That, I'm not saying you're judging somebody's salvation. Judgment calls need to be made when something happens. So deacons, apostles, pastors, leaders, sometimes often have to make judgment calls. It was especially needed now at that time in handling this division that popped up in the church because improper handling by unwise men would be like throwing kerosene on the fire. And you all know people that do this. You go over to the Hellenist Christian. I saw them take a piece of bread out of your mama's hands. I saw it happen with my own eyes. You going to let them get away with that? I saw them give a loaf of sunbeam. They kind of handed it to your mom, and then they took it away and gave it to one of them Jewish people over there. Like, y'all, you're going you're gonna to take that? People throw kerosene on fires. You want to talk about one of the most unchristlike things to do. All it is is gossip. Gossip, yap, 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 yap. Is that, is that helping to, to solve the issue? No, it's making the issue worse. So wisdom has got has to prevail. And so we see this deacon ministry launched. Verse 4. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. We'll devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And the basic purpose of a deacon is to relieve the lead pastor or pastors for prayer and for preaching and teaching the word. I want you to see two things. The great ministries of the church, and by great I mean large. The great ministries of the church are twofold. It's prayer and it's ministry of the word. It's prayer and it's preaching and teaching the gospel. Everything else as needful and as necessary as it is has got to fall under the umbrella of prayer and of ministry of the word. It all's got to fall under that. So therefore, a pastor has got to give his life to those two ministries. 
He's got to focus his life on those two ministries. Not be distracted from those things. It's in prayer, y'all, that a believer reaches up and, and talks to the Lord. Above all else, really above all else, a leader has got to live on his face before the creator of the universe, sharing with the Lord and pleading with him on behalf of the body. Final instructions to the church at Thessalonica, Paul, uh, Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, to pray without ceasing. Live a life of prayer. Pray, pray, pray. He, he, and he talks often in his letters about him praying for the leadership of those churches. He talks about him praying for the people. in the, And I'm telling y'all, I'm confessing to you, I have failed in that. I have failed. October the 3rd is today. I will never fail in that again. Ever. I will be on my face every single day. Praying for y'all every day. Lifting you and your families up to the Lord every day. That is my commitment every day. And I'm, I'm honest, I have failed at doing that. I, it's, it's not going to happen again. I told you I go in there and I pray every Sunday morning in that little room. And I pray for our worship service. But I failed to be praying for y'all. Never again. That is one of the greatest ministries of a church. It's one of the greatest honors of a leader to pray for the people that he leads. And so it will never happen again. And y'all, it's in the word of God. That's how he speaks to people. In scripture. That's how he speaks to the pastor. That's how he speaks to the body. That's how he speaks to the world. And so a pastor's got to spend hours and days seeking God and finding out what he wants, what he wants to say to him and what he, what he, the message that he wants to get conveyed to the people and to the, to the world. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Again, Paul's telling Timothy, this young pastor, he says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, as a worker who has no need to be ashamed Rightly handling the word of truth. Rightly handling scripture. Rightly interpreting scripture. Rightly walking himself through God's word. He goes on in chapter 3. And he says all scripture. The scripture that I just told you how to, that you needed to rightly divide. That you needed to rightly interpret. That you needed to rightly convey to people. He says all that scripture is breathed out by God. All of it is inspired. And all of it is profitable for teaching and reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God, Paul says, so that the man of God may be complete. Is there a period there? No, there's not. The man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. That's what the Word of God does. It equips us to do His work. Here's another thought. Imagine what a difference there would be. If pastors could live constantly in prayer for their people. Constantly, without ceasing, for the people in their churches. And fully immersed in the Word of God. Fully immersed. Constantly in the Word. 
One of my prayers is that the lay believers in churches all over the world. Part of every church. Whatever it is. Whatever church it is. Calvary Baptist. Grace Presbyterian. The Fort. On and on. That the believers in every church across our city and across the state and across the, the world would allow, even insist, y'all, that their pastors would be on their faces before the Lord and immersed in the Word of God. My prayer is that at Calvary Baptist Church that they would, that they would insist that Ricky Smith was on his face before the Lord. That at the fort they would insist that Matt Stephen stayed dug into the Word of God. At Christ Community that Derek Shields would never come out of the Word other than praying for his people. That if every church would do that. Again, Paul opening up this letter to, to Timothy in 1 Timothy at the beginning. He says, I thank him who has given me strength. Christ Jesus our Lord because he judged me faithful appointing me to his service. That word devote in, in verse 4 of Acts 6. It means to continue steadfastly, to persevere, to, to stick to it. So the pastor is to pray and pray and pray and study and study and study and share and share and share and preach and teach the word without letting up. Steadfast, persevering, continuing on and on and on and on in prayer and in the word. Imagine what that would look like. Imagine what it would look like. So it's preaching and teaching and praying. Verse 5 says, And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen and a man full of faith and, and all those guys. They chose seven. Four points. The church acted in love and humility. Nobody got their britches in a wad. Right? And this church, <clears throat> this church was probably 80% Jewish Christians, 80% Hebrew Christians, and probably 20% Hellenistic. The Hebrew Palestinian Christians massively outnumbered the Hellenistic ones. And so the apostles and the Hebrew believers, thousands of them responded in love and humility. Every single one of the seven men that were chosen to be deacons were Greek. All of them were Greek. None of the names are Jewish names, they're Greek names. So what you saw was the largest segment of the church humbling itself to the minority. Massive majority humbling itself to a little minority. Y'all, what an incredible example that is. All those deacons were Greek. The body now had been reunited in one spirit, in one call, in one mission, in one worship. The fact that they were all Greek kind of points towards God moving the church out into the world. Because Christ had commissioned those first disciples <clears throat> to go out into the world in, the, in, in Matthew 28 and in the beginning of Acts 1. And now he's providentially getting his church ready for this day that's coming, this day of, of massive persecution. Where believers would be scattered all over the world. He's preparing their church without them even knowing that they're being prepared. Another thought, we as believers have got to be rooted in love and in humility. Why? So that God can use us in his plan to reach the world for his son. 
you do realize that's the plan for me and you to reach the world for his son. If we're deeply, if our roots are deep in love and, and in humility, it works. Galatians chapter 3, Paul writes, there's not Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave or free. There's no male or female. For you all are one in Christ Jesus. Look at the beginning of Philippians 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, and do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Walk on that. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only look to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. So they were in one accord, and they chose seven Greek believers. Look at verse 6. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed, and they laid hands on them. This was an ordination service. It was a specific moment in time where those guys were set apart for ministry. Before that, they weren't serving in that capacity. Now they were called to minister to the needs of their church family, helping in the day-to-day -day needs. The church set them apart before the apostles. The church went to prayer. The apostles laid hands on these newly appointed deacons. And then we see the results of all of it in verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And here's this little nugget. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So the word increases. The apostles are freed to concentrate on prayer and the word. And there was a new power in their witness. And there's a new power in their preaching. And there's a new power in their teaching. Because they can focus on what their, their call and their mission is. And so the church grows and many more people are reached with the gospel, with the message of Jesus. And even a bunch of Jewish priests got saved. Words say they became obedient to the faith. Those priests became obedient in both receiving Christ and in following Christ. They embraced the gospel and they lived out the gospel. John writes in 1 John, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. That's called Christ-likeness. If I'm going to profess the name of Christ, I probably need to be walking that way. Hey, I want to call the worship team up too. I should be walking that way. If I'm going to name the name of Christ, I ought to look like that. I ought to talk like that. I ought to act like that. I ought not be gossiping. I ought not be throwing kerosene on the fire. If somebody says something bad about the church, I ought to defend the church. If somebody says bad, something bad about my friend, something unkind about my friend, I don't need to pour kerosene on that. I need to pour water on that fire. Don't make things worse. It's not the way, it's not the way to do things. It's not Christ-like. It's just not. Gossip is cancerous, y'all. I cannot tell you how cancerous it is. So the only way to walk in the Spirit is to have the Spirit living inside of you. You cannot be Christ-like if He's not living inside of you. You cannot walk in the Spirit. 
if he's not living inside of you. And y'all, we serve a God who is relentless. He is relentless. He will hunt you down. He will chase you down. He will never stop hunting you down. He will hunt you up a tree. You will run and run and run away from him. I did it. Y'all, I did it for years. He will hunt you down. And he will hunt you down because he loves you. And he is, he will ne- he, he is just relentless. But you can't walk in the Spirit. You can't display the fruit of the Spirit if he's not living inside of you. So I'm begging you, if you don't know him today, and if you've never said yes to his offer, and if you said, I'm putting that off, so you're not giving an answer, you have no answer, then that's a no. Y'all get that? No answer is a no answer. And so if you've been putting that off, I'm just asking you to consider the truth claims, the truth claims that this book makes. The truth claims that this book makes can be wrapped up super easily in Matthew 16. Jesus says to Peter, who do you say that I am? Peter, simplest answer ever, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the truth claim this makes. And if you never said yes to that, don't go to sleep tonight without answering that question. All of us got to answer that question. It's a simple deal. I repent. I admit that I'm a sinner. And I repent of the sin, turn away from it, turn towards God, believe that he died on that cross to take care of my sin problem, which has got to get taken care of. And you can choose to take care of it yourself. You can. The cost of that is an eternity in hell. But you got to choose her and you can do that. It's a terrible, stupid choice, but you can choose that. But it's going to get taken care of. So I admit I'm a sinner. I turn away from it, turn towards the Lord, confess with my mouth that he is the Lord and he is my Savior. And that death on the cross took care of my sin and I believe that he rose walked out of the grave alive and I just cry out to him Lord save me that's it that's the gospel that's what they kept on preaching in in Solomon's colonnade that's the focus of Peter and John and all those guys that's the ministry of the word so if you've never done that I would ask you And you can come down here to the cross. You can sit in your seat if you've never done that. If you're watching online, you can do it right there at home. But y'all pray this with me. Lord, let today be the day that I say yes to that offer. Today be the day that I admit that I'm jacked up. And I turn away from all of it and turn towards you. Lord, today is the day I ask you to save me because I know you took care of of my sin and you walked out of the grave alive so Lord save me in Jesus name amen hey we've got our people on our prayer team back there they would love to pray with you if you just said yes to the Lord they would really love to pray with you if you've got any kind of needs they're back there we'll turn it back over to the worship team